Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, June 24th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night, I spent a lot of time watching BBC News. A lot. The night before that, it was C-SPAN augmented by Periscope. At this rate, tonight I will be watching four hours of either Lifetime Movies for Women or that smooth jazz station on channel 1,248. Maybe I'll go to Soundscapes on channel 1,247. All night on the BBC, I was treated to sentences like, Yorks and Humber have voted to leave. Blabby have voted out. Denbingshire, out. Dumfries and Galloway, out. Mid-Suffolk leave, mid-Sussex stay. Kingston-upon-Hull leave, Kingston-upon-Thames stay. You got to wonder if there's something in the water. I mean, if if you're the Kingston-on-Thames, you're definitely staying. But if you're on Hull, you're like, I'm out of here. So we got it wrong. I got it wrong. I got a little bit wrong. I wasn't that. My confidence was ebbing, but I got it wrong. I didn't have much to go on. I looked at the polls. They were edging in favor of Remain, but I looked at the history of the Scottish independence vote, which polled even. But then in 2014, Scotland voted to stay in the UK. That could change. Looked at the assassination of Joe Cox. But I also looked at the betting markets, and they were heavily saying that Britain would stay in the EU. They were wrong. So I asked an expert, Chad Millman, about that. Brexit. 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 Whether to stay in. So for our one question, one question only Brexit edition, I'm joined by Chad Millman. Chad will be on in about a month to talk about a great anniversary in a book he's written called The Detonators. But now I want to tap his brain as an expert on gambling. He hosts the Behind the Bets podcast on ESPN. And I want to ask him this question. Knowing what you know about gambling and about how bookies set the odds, how did the British bookies get Brexit so wrong? Do you think they took a big hit? I can't tell you if they took a big hit, but I do think that on something like this, whenever you're sort of trying to intuit odds on political events, there's only so much research you can do. You can look into the polling data. You can see what's sort of happening in the media. You can scroll through anything you want online or listen on television. But at the end of the day, there's so much of an unconscious bias. I think a lot of bookies end up listening to what they're hearing within their circles. And so many bookies, especially British bookmakers, are living within that central area of London where the majority of people were 
in favor of staying in uh, the EU. And so now all of a sudden you're talking about a group where they're hearing a lot of things and not having touch points with people who clearly were the predominant voice and there's just not really reliable data. All right. Thank you, Chad. Listen to the Behind the Bets podcast from ESPN. Brexit. 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 New results in Dumfries and Galloway out. Pembrokeshire leave. Red car and Cleveland. New on the UPN. No. Red car and Cleveland out. Newcastle under Lyme. Leave. Neath Port Townsend. Leave. You wonder why the Brits seem so oppressed with all these names. And not just are they weighing down upon you. It's like the whole history of England is right there in every town name. In America, I mean, at least we have Hanover, New Hampshire, but also Paris, Texas, and Lima, Ohio, to say nothing of Hohokus, New Jersey, or Massapequa, New York, or Milwaukee. At least the place names let us know that we are a polyglot and diverse people. So today in the spiel, we will examine the Brexit at greater length, the whys, the what's, the who's to blame. Wait, the who is to blame? No, Townsend and Daltrey stay. Anderson, Buford, leave. Wakeman and Howe remain. Speaking of which, let's now go to 1964, which was when many people in the pro-Brexit crowd were teenagers. Here on this show, we use these years to count down the hits. And on this, a day of British retreat, we examine the beginning of the British invasion atop the charts. In 1964, Martin Luther King won the Nobel Peace Prize. Lyndon Johnson got his Civil Rights Act through Congress, finally. The Beatles played Ed Sullivan. But of course, I think we remember 1964 for the song Ringo by Lorne Green. Oh, we'll get to that. Because with me is Chris Malamphy. He writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate magazine. And he joins us from time to time to count down the number one hits of a year. And what a year, 1964. You, you rarely get a year more associated with an act. And 1964 was the Beatles year. You want to start there? Why don't we start there? Because that's sure. half the chart. It's, it's quite literally, I mean, maybe not half the chart, mm-hmm. although the Beatles were number one for something like half the weeks of the year. This is the year that the Beatles break in America. The Beatles famously played on Ed Sullivan, although by the time they played on Ed Sullivan, not everyone remembers this. They already had the number one song in America with their American breakthrough, I Want to Hold Your Hand. That went to number one in late January, very end of January 1964. So by the time they played, play Ed Sullivan in early February 1964, they are already top of the pops, which frankly helps explain why there are so many people in the audience screaming their heads off. The Beatles! And it wound up spending seven weeks at number one. Amazingly, uh, as if this wasn't enough of a chart feat, uh, given that so few British acts of any kind had ever uh, peaked at number one in America. Huh. They went on to score two more consecutive number one hits back to back. To have an uninterrupted run of three straight number one hits is still to this day unprecedented. Wow, I didn't realize that. I mean, we know the Beatles dominated the charts, but I guess, and, and those three hits were I Want to Hold Your Hand, She Loves You, and Can't Buy Me Love. That's right. But I guess what happened is music got more sophisticated. They knew not to release them in order, but with the Beatles, they were all 
out there and it was it wasn't as if one company was really in charge of the release as much as it was just a torrent. What's interesting about why the Beatles scored so many number one hits and so so many Hot 100 hits and so many top five hits, I'll get to all these records in a second, mm-hmm. is kind of an accident of history. Famously, going into 1964, EMI, uh, the British label uh, that had signed the Beatles, was begging their American counterpart, Capitol Records, to release Beatles songs for the American market. And Capitol was basically telling them over and over again, forget it, no chance. Nothing sounded like this. They basically said, these records will do nothing in this market. So what Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, did was he actually licensed several of the Beatles singles to assorted labels that were not Capitol because Capitol had right of first refusal. But if Capitol didn't want to release them, the Beatles were free to to sign on a single by single basis. So, for example, the Beatles' uh, second number one single in America, uh, She Loves You, Capitol had no interest in releasing it. So it went to a small American label called Swan. Mm. So that number one hit is not actually on the Beatles' home label, either EMI or Capitol. Uh, in America, it's on this tiny swan label. So what wound up happening was that after the Beatles broke in late January and appeared on Ed Sullivan, any label that had any claim to any piece of the Beatles' legacy, uh, they just you know flooded the market with everything. This is the accident of history that led to the Beatles scoring three number one hits directly in a row, back to back to back, a feat that had never been done before and still to this day has never been done since. It led to the Beatles having as many as 14 songs on the Hot 100 at one time at their peak. And then for one glorious week in April of 1964, the Beatles pulled off something that, again, has never been pulled off before or since in chart history. The top five on the Hot 100 was all Beatles singles. That has never happened before. Other artists have had maybe two or three at one time. Which ones? On the week ending April 4th, 1964, on the Billboard Hot 100, the top five singles were number five, Please Please Me by the Beatles. Number four, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles, a prior number one songs now down to number four at number three she loves you by the beatles also a prior number one song had just fallen out of the number one spot number two twist and shout by the beatles that was where it would peak twist and shout wound up being a number two hit and at number one can't buy me love the lead-off single to their forthcoming first movie a hard day's night was at number one and so the beatles owned the entire top five in early april 1964 Why were the Beatles seen as so weird that a label that was successful totally whiffed on them? It's not as if there wasn't rock and roll. I know the British invasion represented something new stylistically and something new musically. But, you know, what the Beatles were doing wasn't so different from whatever, Elvis or Jerry Lee Lewis or Bill Haley and the Comets or something. I think it had to do with a lot of factors, such as the Beatles' presentation. I mean, let's not forget that when the Beatles showed up, adult culture was poking fun at their look, right? Those those mop-top haircuts. They had longer hair than anybody had ever seen in 1964. But then, more substantively, the Beatles wrote all of their own material. Um, not all of the material they recorded, but certainly all of their hit singles, with, with the rare exception of something like Twist and Shout, they were a self-contained unit. That was a very new thing, and that's another thing that makes 1964 interesting. What you're seeing here is the push and pull between a different model of the entire record industry with, you know, professional songwriters, in some cases writing almost in song factories like the Brill Building. Mm-hmm. And it was a very different model that the Beatles were, were bringing to our shores uh, in presentation, in harmony p- singing. The harmony singing of the Beach Boys predates the Beatles, certainly. And obviously there's there's doo-wop, there, there's what the Four Seasons were doing. But the particular 
other kinds of harmonies, some of the jazzier chords the Beatles would use. Uh, the last line of She Loves You, the yeah, 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 is a jazz chord that you would never hear at the end of a, an American pop single in 1963, 64. Yeah. They were they were magpies, and that's always what made the Beatles interesting. Was they were borrowing from British music hall tradition. They were borrowing from uh, obviously American R and B heavily, but they were transmogrifying it and turning it into something different. And it it just caught everybody a little unawares. Certainly everybody in the industry. Certainly everybody at their own label. And to make your point, I mean, the guy who the Beatles supplanted was Bobby Vinton. Talk about you know an old school. And it's not as if he were a one hit wonder. He had two number one songs this year. He had two number one songs this year and yeah. four in total. Bobby oh Vinton was exceedingly Bobby, he's a popular. Juggernaut. He really but was. For the Beatles. He, he really been, was. Yeah, the Vinton invasion. Chart Mavens love to talk about the fact that it isn't just that the Beatles invaded America and went to number one in, you know, the winter of 1964. They actually knocked out a crooner completely removed from the sound of rock and roll. And, and that's to take nothing away from Bobby Vinton because he was a, you know, a polished, uh, poised artist with some terrific singles. Uh, but yeah, he knocks out there. I've said it again, which is uh, the last number one song of 63. It's still number one for all of the first month of 1964. I love you. I will till the end. enormously popular song but let's be honest it sounds like a record that could have been number one in 1958 or 57 it, it does not sound like what the 60s are going to sound like dean martin in the same camp he had a number one song with everybody loves somebody and then i gotta talk about this lauren green lauren green took a song to number one that i think even lauren green were he alive would admit but for the beatles would not be number one with lead and blood, he gained such fame all through the West. They feared the name of Ringo. Ringo, Ringo. There's some debate over whether the fact that this song is called Ringo <laughs> was what made it a number one hit. Let's give Lauren Green his due. Lauren Green was starring on Bonanza, the biggest show on television in 1964. I mean, Bonanza was a TV juggernaut watched by... An audience that nowadays, if you had an audience like this, it would be the Super Bowl. I mean, it, it, it was epic how many people watch Bonanza week after week. And he records this song about the legend of Ringo. And by the way, the Ringo is not Ringo Starr. No. And it's a song about the sheriff who saves gunman Johnny Ringo. This one goes to number one very late in the year, late in 1964. By this point, everybody knew who Ringo Starr was. I have no idea if that contributed, but it couldn't have hurt. So it was a great year for girl groups. You have the Supremes there a couple times. You have uh, the Shangri-Las and uh, Chapel of Love by the Dixie Cups, who I guess if you said Chapel of Love, I would think that's a Motown song, but it's not a Motown song. It's not a Motown yeah. song. Actually, if there's one thread that runs through 1964, you know who had a, a spectacular year was a Brill Building uh, songwriting duo, Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry. Uh, when I say Brill Building, if you know what the Brill Building is, of course, it's that building on Broadway in the upper 40s in Manhattan. It was quite literally a song factory there were these small rooms with upright pianos and a desk where people would write some of the greatest pop songs of the late 50s and 60s. Quietly, in 1964, Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry, a couple who uh, were both from Brooklyn, New York, had an amazing year. They had three number one hits in 1964, and they are all stone classics. Dixie Cup's Chapel of Love, a song they co-wrote with Phil Spector, Manfred Mann's Do Wah Diddy Diddy, 
And finally, the Shangri-La's leader of the pack, which they co-wrote with George Shadow Morton. Also, let's uh, let's talk briefly about Manfred Mann's Duwa Diddy Diddy. Manfred yeah. Mann, the, the, the line on what the Beatles did to the charts in 1964 was they made it harder for singer-songwriters to find, you know, find their way in this new economy. Well, Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry were doing just fine because they managed to get Manfred Mann to record Duwa Diddy Diddy and they got a number one hit out of it. Now, Manfred Mann was not the first British invasion group to go to number one. And if they were, I'd say, that's great. Manfred Mann deserves it. But the first British invasion group, other than the Beatles, to go to number one was... That would be Peter and Gordon. <laughs> uh, man, Peter and Gordon. Where do, we talk, where do we start talking about Peter and Gordon? Um, All I know is this. I don't care what they say. I don't, I don't want to live in a world without love. Why would you want to live in a world I without love? I don't want to live in a world without love. I don't care what they say. I won't stay in a world without love. Peter and Gordon were actually getting to number one on directly on the coattails of the Beatles. They were getting number one with a song written by Paul McCartney. It was a reject, something that Paul had written several years ago. And why did Peter and Gordon wind up with it? Do you have any idea, Mike, no. why these guys wound up with this song? No. Peter of Peter and Gordon is Peter Asher. Peter Asher is the brother of Jane Asher. Do you know who Jane Asher is? No, no, no. Jane Asher was Paul McCartney's girlfriend yes. from 1963 <laughs> to 1968. Everybody spent the 60s waiting for Paul McCartney to propose to Jane Asher, and he never did. I know he, I did. He, yeah, right. I was on tenterhooks. Paul McCartney did not marry Jane Asher, but he dated her for half the decade uh, until finally dumping her for Linda McCartney in, I believe, 1968. In any case, her brother, Peter Asher, had formed a, a duo with his Scottish buddy, and Paul had this extra song lying around that the Beatles had no interest in called A World Without Love, and it goes to number one for just one week week in June of 1964, because if there's one thing that Americans wanted all throughout 1964, it was anything that reminded them or sounded like the Beatles. Now, I don't know if the animals, the House of the Rising Sun, reminded them of the Beatles. It shouldn't sonically. It's not a sweet song. But as we look at all the other songs on the list from I Get Around by the Beach Boys to Hello Dolly and My Guy, Ringo, this is the only song that has, I think, a little bit of a rough edge to it. Oh, mother. Tell your children not to do what I have done. Spend your life sincere in misery in the house of rising sun. It's a gritty song, yeah. uh, and it, it, it's literally uh, not credited to any songwriter because it's traditional and it dates back decades. And Eric Burden, uh, the leader of the Animals, was instrumental in their recording it. He liked the song, and it, it boy, there's a record that, to your point, you can't see being a number one hit in America if the Beatles don't happen, even though it's not sweet like the Beatles, it's not mop-top like the Beatles. I mean, the, the Beatles had a certain profile at this point that was many leagues removed at this moment before the Beatles got down and dirtier later. And uh, House of the Rising Sun is a direct beneficiary of the British invasion, a, a number one hit that would have been unthinkable had it not been for, for the British invasion breakthrough. We should probably, if only in brief, talk a little bit about Motown as well. Uh, 1964 is an important breakthrough year for Motown. The first song on the Motown label, and I have to put a little asterisk on that, goes to number one in 1964. And you've mentioned it a couple of times. It's Mary Wells' My Guy. Nothing you could do because I'm stuck right glue to my guy. 
say there's an asterisk because it's not actually the first Barry Gordy affiliated number one hit. Back in 1961, Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes actually went to number one, and that was on the Tamla label, T-A-M-L-A. Uh, when Barry Gordy founded his Motown recording company, he actually first put records out on Tamla, and Tamla had a number one hit in 1961. So, Finally, in the spring of 64, a record on the Motown label, Mary Wells, My Guy, goes to number one. That's also a huge year for Motown because later of the year, we have not one, not two, but three number one hits by the Supremes. At this time, it seems like you had these fiefdoms. You had, let's consider the British Isles one and, and all the music that was coming out of there. You had what was going on with Motown. We had the Brill Building that we talked about. You have something representing the old guard like Lauren Green and Dean Martin. There's a, an oversimplification, I think, of the 1960s that basically argues that up until 1964, nothing much was going on. And then the Beatles showed up, woke everybody up after JFK's assassination, and then the 60s became the 60s. To say that there was nothing going on in the 60s prior to the Beatles is, is unfair to American music and unfair even to the Beatles. It was a year where you got to see who adapted to the new world order and how they adapted. Barry Gordy had founded his Motown label way back in 1959 when the Beatles were still, you know, they hadn't even gone to Hamburg yet, right? Yeah. And he's finally coming into his own in 1964 with all these Supremes hitting with Mary Wells. The singer-songwriters uh, of the Brill Building had already been scoring hits as far back as 1961, 62, 63. The Beach Boys had already been having hits prior to 64. 64 is when they finally get a number one with I Get Around. But they'd been knocking around for quite some time. We talked before about Bobby Vinton. He has a number one hit at the beginning of the year with There I've Said It Again and Let's give him his props. He had a number one hit at the end of the year, December 1964, with Mr. Lonely. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely. I have nobody for my own. I'm so Probably one of his best-known songs. It was actually sampled on a hip-hop song 10 years ago by Akon called Lonely. So that song has had long legs. It isn't as if the Beatles put everybody out of a job overnight. They just changed the rules. And then you either adapted or you were, you know, roadkill. Chris Malanfi writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate. We pick a year. We talk about the songs. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mike. This one here goes out to all my players out there, man. You know, that got that one good girl, dog, that's always been there, man. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. And now the spiel shuffling off this Brussels coil. Britain brexited, the pound plummeted, and the Cameron career cratered. Scotland looks like it's on its way to becoming part of Scandinavia. And if they had to recast the Spice Girls today, I think they'd go with ginger, sporty, scaredy, downwardly mobile, and desperate. I believe leave one for a lot of reasons. Most of the reasons are the reasons that you're hearing. Yeah, in tough times, we blame outsiders. 
And the costs of trade are felt deeply by a few, you know, people who lost their jobs and livelihood, whereas the benefits of trade are accrued to the many, but in smaller ways. Great. My socks are $4.75 instead of $5.50. But I also think the vote was another one of these votes that were a triumph of gut over brains. I was against Brexit because I'm pro-trade, but I'm pro-trade mainly because all the smartest economists say trade is a good thing. And it seems more or less to be working out for me and from what I can see. But I can't touch that feeling, that pro-trade feeling, as much as people who are out of work just know in their guts that trade is wrong and that trade is hurting them. This was a chance to do something, to do anything about the situation. And they did anything, and they did something. They did something bad, but that surely is a something. Maybe the question is, how do you ever win a brains argument when times aren't great? In brains versus guts, isn't guts always going to win because we're, you know, human? I don't know. I suppose what you do can be boiled down to you turn the brains argument into a guts argument. And one of the ways you do that is you take the worst argument of your opponents and you find a fence. And the Brexiteers didn't make it hard. Here is Nigel Farage of UKIP, the UK Independence Party, hailing the results. If the predictions now are right, this will be a victory for real people, a victory for ordinary people, a victory for decent people. The real people, that is, that is not an out-of-context misspeak of a phrase. That is how he thinks. He thinks our opponents might be a lot of things, but they're not really people. The problem is that calling the other side racist, and it's not that hard in this case, you can only get so much mileage out of that. And in the UK, you can get even less calamitage because it's a more homogeneous society. Plus, there were a lot of arguments for leave that weren't racist. There weren't many good arguments for leave, but a lot of those bad arguments weren't racist. And this leads me to the last point I want to make. And it's a point that I was surprised it even occurred to me. So here's how I thought of it. I was explaining, I was talking Brexit with my girlfriend, as one does over breakfast, how the leave coalition has so much in common with the Trump coalition. And she said, well, if leave won, isn't that a scary thing for America? Shouldn't we be more worried about Trump winning? And a lot of people have said that. But I explained there are some different things going on in America. For one thing, there's not really a gender gap in the Brexit vote, whereas Trump is doing everything he can to alienate women. But the big thing is, it's mostly that the demographics of Britain and America are so different. And then it hit me. And I need to say this here and now and plainly. I would like to thank, I would like to deeply thank for the sake and fate of my country, I would like to thank black and brown Americans black and brown voting Americans. Because without black and brown Americans, where the hell would we be? Sure, I want to thank black and brown Americans for, you know, building this country, in many cases, against the will of especially black Americans. The arts, where would the arts be? Most of what I listen to, that isn't two or three people talking, is greatly influenced by black Americans. But I mean right now, here today, 2016, if it weren't for the voting preferences of black and brown Americans, where would America be? We would probably be on our way to a Trump presidency.
The Democrats would probably have nominated Bernie as the only thing standing in the way of that. And we'd have the equivalent of a Brexit. We'd have rampant, acceptable xenophobia. We'd have a lot more corporate welfare. We'd have a lot more bad ideas and a lot fewer good ideas. When we think about the issues concerning black and brown America, we think of the two big things, the two big Supreme Court cases from yesterday, as a matter of fact, immigration and affirmative action. Or as you might put it, the Supreme Court failed to overturn a lower court order, meaning there will be a mini Megxit. But the court also said that admissions officers can continue doing what they can to avoid having higher education become the site of a Blexit. So on these two specific issues, I happen to be pretty ambivalent. I think both are tough issues. I wouldn't end affirmative action today. It would have been better if the presidential order had stood. But I think neither of these are ideal as ongoing policies. And we do tend to think of black or brown issues in these ways in some specific slate of policies. But take the larger idea of how black and Latino voters vote, of what they stand for, and this is really important, of who they stand against. And that is the difference between the U.S. being the U.S. that we'd like it to be like I'd like it to be, and the U.S. being one of these states constantly roiled, if not overtaken, by nationalist parties who only fear the outsiders. So much of our national politics depends on black and brown Americans. Black and brown Americans are a bulwark. Black and brown Americans are proving to be the only differentiation we have, the best line of defense against the worst political ideas in circulation today. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson and Bassing Stoke and Dean vote remain. Executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai and Ode B and Wigston vote leave. Stockton on Tees and Chief Content Officer on Bowers vote to stay. The Gist votes to stay. And as goes the Gist, so go the Vale of Glamorgan and the Vale of Whitehorse. Umpru Depru Dupru, Rhonda Sinin Taff, and thanks for listening.